yeah, so I am Mauro Hernandez. Uh, I am a wildlife tech at uh, Craters of the Moon. This is my second season. Uh, took a year off and came back and working on some of our new projects we have here. How has it been working at Craters of the Moon? Oh, it's it's with field work. It's flexibility is key. It's always a new day, a new adventure. Um, so that's that's what I love about my job. I mean, you never you have a plan. You go in. It's never it's never gonna work out. Wildlife doesn't read the manuals, so uh, it's, it keeps it interesting. But it's been a good year. Awesome. And so you are mainly focusing on bats. You have been focusing on bats this past summer. Yep. Yep. And yep. could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so we have started uh, a long-term maternity colony project here at Craters of the Moon. So bats, um, during summer months, uh, they tend to separate. So the males are a little more solitary. Females, they gather up and they actually give birth. Um, they do it together in a group. And so thermoregulation is a big part of that. Um, they share body temperature and that makes it easier to uh, use more of their resources, more of their energy into raising their young. So this project was all about about trying to discover where those maternity colonies are. Um, we had six historic sites. However, historic typically means last time they were checked out was early 90s. Um, so there was a lot of question marks about it. But it was recently um, uh, discovered that over 60% of all of the uh, Townsend's, which is a bad species, Townsend's maternity colonies are found here at Craters of the Moon, which is why there was this big push for this project. So that's uh, sort of what we've been working on, trying to discover where these maternity colonies are. Um, so it's a very uh, susceptible uh, species or susceptible um, site. And we've also just been documenting the other uses. So even if it's not a maternity site, if it's an important bat roost, we want to document that and try to protect them where they are. And how much have how much success have you had? <laughs> success is a hard one, man. Um, so that's what keeps everything interesting. We went out thinking we have these six historic sites, and that they are a certain bat species, uh, Townsend's bigger bats. And then we later go on to find that most of the ones of the historics that we have um, of those six historic, we were able to to study four of the six historic. One site we didn't get um, access to. Um, one site had some vandalism, so I pulled the equipment from there, and I didn't want to continue working there. Um, out of the others, two of them we confirmed as uh, maternity sites. However, they were for a different bat species, so still successful, um, but more questions now. Um, so we have to figure out, you know, uh, are they moving out? Do they, you know, do other bats come in? Do similar bats use uh, a maternity roost at the same time? So maybe there's multiple species using it as a maternity site? Because um, bats are very, very communal. There's not a lot of territoriality with uh, bats. So a lot more questions, but I'd say it was pretty successful. We, um, we certainly um, buffed the project from what it was supposed to be. It was very basic, and then we, we pulled out all the stops and uh, made it, you know, something uh, quite large. So. And you had some people... Uh, I, and I, I don't know exactly what was going on, but you were able to get some really special equipment to get in here. Is that correct? Yeah, so we, we use a lot of, a lot of special, uh, special things. Um, the main tool that we use are um, acoustic monitors. So uh, these, these detectors, we put them out, and they passively record um, bat calls. So they will 
collect calls for however long they're out. Um, some of them can stay out in the field for you know 12 to 20 days. Um, some of the larger ones up to 40. Um, so it was a lot of borrowing equipment, uh, asking because we only had two detectors personally um, at Craters of the Moon, and unfortunately neither ended up working out this season. Um, so that's the problem with uh, expensive technology. It uh, it doesn't always work, and you just kind of go with it. Um, so. A lot of last-minute calls, and we were able to borrow some equipment from Idaho Fish and Game, which was great. And, um, yeah, this project was able to be a success. And also we had – it was originally six caves that we were supposed to study. Uh, we went through 18 caves, so we had to really buff the equipment we had. Um, so, like I said, detectors are, are the key. Uh, we also used uh, a Sony Night Shot camera 4K video um, with a nice little infrared kit to do some outflights. So as the bats are coming out, trying to identify them. So a lot of infrared work. So that was another good uh, little bit. That's Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it was. Um, and so you said one of the caves was vandalized. Is that one of the caves that's open to the public? Is, so it was not. So the cave itself was not necessarily vandalized. Um, we didn't notice anything uh, altered there. The equipment, however, um, there were three different stations. So what I do for this equipment for the detectors is um, there's a microphone just on a normal PVC or metal pole. Um, it's got a little bit of a boom to kind of get out and be positioned in the right area. Uh, the cable goes down into this little box that holds, you know, that's recording all the sound um, that has a memory card in it. So as I was going out, I noticed um, a few of them, the, uh, the poles were down. Um, which, you know, it happens sometimes, wind, animals, they get knocked down. Um, but they were sort of taken apart um, in a way that I was, I was a little skeptical about. And then one of my, uh, my masts, one of the poles holding it, um, it was almost bent in, in a C shape. So that was, uh, that was a little, you know, and again, another hint. Wow. And then the last one, um, the cave that we pulled out from, the vandalism, um, just the memory cards were gone. So... Um, you know, they, they took it apart again. Memory cards were gone. I really didn't want to risk losing any more gear. Yeah. Um, I was worried that, again, they might take or destroy the detectors, which are really expensive. So we, uh, we backed out from that spot, um, but it is still a priority. But those caves in that area, those are all um, – there is no public access for those caves. They are all – legally, they're closed, um, mm. but – it is in an area where people can go and, you know, if they see a cave, most people, there's no sign or anything. So they're unaware that they are doing something they probably shouldn't. Right, right. So. Okay. And so how many bats are, how many species of bats are in Craters of the Moon? Well, who are you going to ask? Depends on who you ask. You asking me? We I'm got asking you. Who are you asking me? <laughs> All right. So um, we state that we have 11 species uh, at Craters of the Moon. In the state of Idaho, there are 16 different bat species. Um when we say we have 11, so the key is, you know, how are we, how are we determining um, that we have it? So are you using acoustic calls? Does it have to be in hand that you identified it? Um, so there's a little back and forth of that. Um, I would say we have all 16 species. One is a little more up in the air, um, but for the most part, I would say that, that all of them reside here. We have um, acoustic calls um, that, at least on the preliminary um, stages, they're that species. You then later go on, you have to hand vet and look and see similar species, see if they are really what uh, these uh, uh, analysis programs um, or software actually say they are. But 
for the most part, it looks like we have all 16. And so uh, uh, 11 have been seen, have been like actually confirmed, and then the other ones have been heard? Is that what? Yeah, so so some of them are, so we have records. Um, uh, an example, we have a pallid bat. So a pallid bat, um, it likes more sagebrush areas. So in the actual monument part, like where all the lava flow is, it's not a great habitat. However, Craters of the Moon has more than just, you know, just that volcanic rock. Um, and there's one record of it where somebody, and I think the 90s, said that they that they have acoustic data for it. However, it stops there, right? So there's no more information, you know, what are your credentials? Because people don't, don't go around with, you know, these ultrasonic recorders and are able to then analyze and say, okay, it's, it's this species of bat. So th- there was definitely a lot more to it. Um, the record, though, is just very bare. However, we're not going to say that that species is in here. Um, and we do occasionally get pallid bats. They're a lot more rare, specifically in the areas that we tend to study. Um, so most people think of bats, they think of cave. That for craters of the moon, that's great. However, there is, you know, there are some habitat and uh, habitat differences. So as you go to the north end, obviously, we've got more trees, riparian zone. Those are different bat species. So if we're not really looking in the trees, you're not going to find the tree bats, right? So most of the studies have been done sort of, you know, they're geared towards cave bats. So there's a good opportunity to miss other species. Um, but we're working on changing that. Cool. And so these cave bats are the most susceptible to white nose syndrome? Typically, yes. So when a lot of the cave bats, um, they hibernate. So bats that hibernate are really the most susceptible. Um, and all bats really are susceptible to a degree. So some of the bats, they don't actually exhibit any of the symptoms of white nose syndrome, um, but they do carry this fungal spore. So because bats are very communal and you'll see often mixed clusters, um, there'll be three or four species in a group, um, it's very easy for those species that may not, you know, exhibit any symptoms, um, they can still spread this. So, so we're still trying to protect all the species, um, but some are more susceptible than others. And so some don't show those symptoms. Does that mean that they're immune to, to it? Again, it's not really immune. So, so the way white nose syndrome works, again, it's a cold-loving uh, fungus. And what it tends to do is it, it attacks the wing membranes or, or any of the skin areas. Um, bats are the only you know, flying mammal. Um, so it tends to make holes in these wing membranes. Um, but a large thing that it does is that it, it prevents true hibernation. So bats, during their period of hibernation, um, they will wake on occasion and they will fly to a different part of the cave or to a new cave. However, they're not up for extended periods of time because during, you know, they're hibernating mostly, you know, because of the temperature, but also because of the lack of a food source, right? So if there's no insects to eat, all the bats at Craters of the Moon in the state of Idaho, they're insectivorous. There's no insects to eat, and you're flying around, you're not able to replenish, so they tend to, to starve to death. Um, so if a bat is hibernating and they get white nose, um, there's sort of like an, it's an irritant for them. So they, they wake up a lot more, they're more active during the winter months, they tend to starve to death. Um, other species that we have, they tend to migrate. Or um, so some of our tree-dwelling species, uh, silver-haired, hoary bats, they are migratory. They don't really hibernate. So they're larger bats, and they don't need to worry about, you know, this lack of, of insects because they're going to move with the insects. So they will carry the spore, but it doesn't affect them. 
um, in the same ways that it would another bat species. And if they were getting the, the holes on their wings, does that mm-hmm. does that affect their ability to fly? So it absolutely. Um, and depending on the bat species, some of them have thicker wing membranes. Um, so uh, bats in other parts of the world where uh, this fungus is natively found, so where it's native, um, it's an invasive species in the United States. Um, their wing membranes are a lot thicker. So you'll see some some discoloration, but they're not actually making holes through the entire membrane. Um, so that's one of those adaptations that bats are are slowly going through um, to to be able to fight white nose syndrome and the effects. However, you know adaptation all that it takes time. You know they're not just going to change overnight. So all that has to be you know sort of bred out. You know? um, so the bats with thicker wing membranes, those are the ones that survive. Um, so they you know, reproduce, and then all of a sudden, their offspring have thicker wing membranes, and again, it's a it's a slow, slow change. So, that is a, a large part of uh, white nose. And so, are bats the the main cause for this uh, fungus being spread across the nation? <laughs> well, so um, you were you were an interpretive ranger, my good friend. I was. So you would know that most people don't like to be blamed for bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a large component, an anthropogenic component, to the spread of white nose. Um, as you started seeing the spread, so it was originally brought to the United States by people. It wasn't brought by bats. No bat crossed, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. So you, you just have to admit right away from the beginning. And since you're ground zero, I would say that you know humans would probably hold you know more responsibility for this. However, you know I'm, you know I'm willing to to argue that. Um, but as this slow change, as the, the spread, rather, of white nose starts moving throughout the United States, um, you start seeing it, it starts consuming the East Coast. Little states, that's going to happen, right? Bats, you know, they move freely about borders. Um, and the states are very small. So you expect to see a very large initial, um, you know, source of white nose. However, there's jumps. So the jump to Washington State, um, there was quite a few states in between, this very large gap. There's not a trail of white nose that we've been able to follow yet. So more than likely, that was human spread. Now it's found in California, unfortunately. Um, so these jumps typically are human spread. Um, bats are very, very much responsible for spreading it among themselves. Again, they are not territorial. They like these larger communities. But um, some of these wider jumps or these larger jumps rather are i would say human um, caused and so how how do these spores um how are humans spreading this so so white nose um white nose syndrome um, again these fungal spores they are cold loving but they also persist for a very long time so we go through um white nose decontamination when we enter a cave um, when we go from cave to cave um there are different rules depending on which agency you are, um, depending on what you're trying to, 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 to do. So the thing is, decontamination is not, is not 100% effective, right? So we're just trying to reduce the, the likelihood of spreading it. Um, and to do so, what we do at Craters of the Moon, and most places do, um, we tend to boil our equipment. So um, once you reach a temperature above... 55 degrees Celsius, so that's 130, 131. Um, So that tends to kill them. Uh, However, this temperature has to be sustained for about 20 minutes. 
Um, so that's what we do, right? So it's obviously very hard to kill these spores. Um, we also use different concentrations of um, alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. They have various um, effectiveness in, in reducing the spore counts. Um, so that's what most people do. Um, at Craters of the Moon, what we try to do is we do not allow any equipment to be used at Craters of the Moon um, that has been used in another cave. Um, so that's more so for researchers. Uh, obviously, we have a cave permit system that you can argue how effective it is. But with researchers, um, if people are coming into this area, they're using our gear. We do not allow, it's not decontamination. Whether they're from a state that has white nose or not, we're not willing to, to take that risk. We want to know that the equipment is from a white nose free state. Um, and then we continue to decontaminate between our caves. So if I'm going to 18 caves, I'm not going to 18 caves in a day because I've got to decontaminate between caves. Every single cave. So that's the best choice. Um, sometimes with caves, when they're clustered, because they're so close together and they're in one general area, I don't bother with it. But the different regions of the park, I certainly, I, I, I can't, I can't justify not doing it. Um, so, you know, our southern end of the monument versus up here in the north end, we definitely, each cave has to be. I'm not going between one cave to the next. Um, so sometimes it's a little overkill. It definitely is. It feels that way at least. However, we don't have white nose for a reason. Um, so it's, it's better to go over the top um, because this is a, a really rough um, disease that is, you know, killing millions of bats. And we're really trying to, to hold out here. It's going to spread. It's going to come to, to Idaho. Um, but if we can prolong that, the hope is that uh, the results will be somewhat favorable so we won't have as much mortality associated with it. So, because as of right now, if it gets here, that's it. There's nothing we can do. We just kind of have to watch the bats. Absolutely. So, so there, is, there is a difference. Um, you can go and look up uh, white-nose syndrome maps. There is a difference between white-nose syndrome and... Um, PD positive states. So California is a PD positive state. So PD is pseudogymnoascus destructans. That's the name of the fungus. White nose are is the sort of the the symptoms that that bats exhibit. So that's the actual sickness or the disease. Um, so right now California is has been shown to be um, PD positive. However, they don't associate any bat mortalities with white nose yet. It's a matter of time. Um, the the climate certainly help in the area that it was found. More than likely, it won't because that's Northern California. It still gets very cold. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly it's a part of it. Um, and so that that's an interesting thing with uh, climate and temperature, right? So we're talking about being a cold loving fungus um, out east. Everything you know, uh, east of of Texas, every state has white nose except for. Uh, Florida and Louisiana. So humidity, temperature, they all play a big part, um, whether or not the bats are actually hibernating. But those states have yet to detect uh, this fungal spore. So wow, that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. And you said this is an invasive species. Mm -hmm. When did it reach the United States? So it was first discovered in 2006 in six little caves in Schoharie County, uh, New York. So that's when it was first discovered in the United States. And then from there, within a year, it was already making a, a massive spread outward, um, north, south, and west. And yeah, it's uh, it's been a monster ever since. 
Um, 20, I want to say 2017 was probably, you know, for me, that was, that was the telling year because that was when it made that jump to Washington mm. state. That was that first focal point. Now there are multiple counties. First it was one County and now you have three or four counties in Washington state. Um, as of, I want to say roughly July, it was found in, in California. So again, that spread, that jump was really what was scariest. You expect initial spread, but when it jumps so drastically, um, that's you know when you get worried because now it's it's moving from from multiple angles, um, so these bats are able to to spread it in a way people are unaware of it. You know my wonderful Californians. Oh, it's you know it's out east. It doesn't affect us, so we're just going to keep doing what we do. And unfortunately, they spread it without you know not intentionally, but they're not worried about it because they were previously under the you know assumption that they were in a white nose free state. However, that changes very quickly. And if I wore a shirt, say in 2010, mm-hmm. into a cave that potentially had white nose syndrome, and I washed it, you know, 10, 15 times, it's clean. I, p- I put it in the dryer. Mm-hmm. Could I wear that into the caves here at Craters of the Moon? So I would prefer you didn't. Um, the thing is, so if your washing machine again holds a very high temperature for an extended period of time, then all likelihood these spores were killed. Um, we're not saying that if you enter a you know a cave that potentially has white nose that you are covered in these spores and they're not going to die. That's not what we're trying to tell you. It's just that the likelihood of some spores persisting, it's still there. there. There's still that chance. So we're trying to eliminate that that opportunity for those spores to be introduced. Um, again, if you wash your clothes, you know I, obviously I go into a lot of caves, um, wash my clothes normally. Um, you know, there's always a chance that there's some spore associated. Um, that's why we wear coveralls. But even then, after your coverall, you also want to, you know, decontaminate what's underneath as well. Um, is it likely to come in contact with a surface that has white nose? No, it's not likely, but there's still that opportunity. So that's what we're working on. Okay. And um, so you like bats. Um, yeah, there are, right? Sarah uh, told me that she had a visitor the other day that she was explaining white nose and he said, good, I, I hope all the bats die from white nose syndrome. And, yeah. you know, you see bats in the movies, they're associated with vampires mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and they're, are bats really that important to, to our ecosystem? Yeah. So, so bats play a lot of uh, amazing ecological roles. Um, they're great pollinators. Um, so agave is a plant that, that is heavily pollinated by bats. Agave, you know, you have your agave syrup. Personally, I like tequila. Um, that is very dependent on agave. So, so there's that. Um, bats are insectivorous, so they eat so many different insects. Um, mosquitoes, nobody really likes mosquitoes. Uh, they are a vector, um, so they're able to transmit or carry, rather, a lot of different diseases. Um, the more bats that are there around to consume insects, consume mosquitoes, um, we reduce the likelihood of spreading these diseases. You know, Zika, um, West Nile was very big, um, you know, malaria, things like that. Um, so that's another important role that uh, bats fill. Um, they help out a lot in the agricultural field. So the, you know, the more bats around, again, not just mosquitoes, but other insects that destroy crops, um, we have to spend a lot less money in herbicides because bats are eating all these insects. Um, so that's always helpful. We have less herbicide runoff into our groundwater and such. So they certainly play a lot of roles. Guano is very good um, in other areas, so it's more South America or so that they have um, 
these large outcrops of guano, but it's a, a very good fertilizer to use. So bats certainly play a lot of ecological roles that, um, you know, we wouldn't necessarily be aware of, um, but certainly do a lot of good for humans. And not only with the ecosystem, but if um, there are less bats and more insects, and that means, like you said, more chemicals, which Mm -hmm. not only damages nature, but it also is more money out of the farmer's pockets and ends up being more out of our pockets. Absolutely. So they are just kind of very, very important for just about everything that goes on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Also, if you've ever seen like a video of a, like a fruit bat eating a grape, it's a good way to like make you smile for that day. So, you know, bats, bats do a lot of good things. You know, I've never seen that. You, I, you I will go straight home and do up. that. Yeah. <laughs> and so the best thing to do to prevent it is to, if you're just a, a, a casual visitor mm-hmm. of national parks, is to wear separate clothing to, to each park if you're planning to go into caves. Yeah, so you just really have to be aware of where your items are going. Um, specifically, you know, I would stress more boots than anything. Um, so when I would do, you know, interpretive talks, and I'm talking to people, um, you know, I want to mention gear. So people are like, oh, my T-shirt's fine, you know, it's new, whatever. Um, most people forget about things like cell phones. Um, you know, some people switch cell phones quite frequently, other people, they hold on to them. And when you're going into a cave, especially now, you know, people, you tell people, Hey, you know, bring a flashlight. Oh, I've got my phone. Okay. Well, was it in the cave? You know, people like taking pictures. Um, so cell phones are often things that people forget that I bring into everywhere I go. And all of a sudden, you know, I was in Carlsbad and I was taking pictures and all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to use it here for a flashlight, but it's, it's, it's not something that necessarily um, registers with them. They don't think about it right away. So those are the things that I like to stress. Um, boots are another thing. Um, you know, you have your favorite pair of boots that you go everywhere with. Um, decontamination is a, it's a tool. Um, so some parks you will go to, they have decontamination mats. You stand in this uh, mat of whatever chemical it is, um, Sometimes it honestly looks like uh, Dawn dish detergent. You know, I, I don't know what they're using, but it isn't the ideal situation. Decontamination is never the first line of defense. So using equipment specifically for different areas. So if you have your Idaho, you know, caving boots, you know, you travel the country, that's great. You know, use those in Idaho. Um, so I travel uh, to a lot of different states I work in. Um, I don't like using the same gear. Whether it's a white nose state or not, I'm not wearing my same boots. I like my boots. You know, I like my gloves. I have very specific caving gloves that I like to use, but I don't want to bring it into from cave to cave or from state to state. So dedicated equipment is often uh, a very effective approach. Um, it's not feasible for everybody, but, you know, it's a little easier than you'd think. What I find is that most people, they're very willing to stay out of it. I understand that people come here almost specifically for caves, right? That's what an attraction is, Craters of the Moon. However, a lot of people that visit national parks, they really do care about the environment and wildlife. They just might not necessarily be aware of certain aspects of it. So when you stress why, and that's, that's the importance. So with white nose, for me, the, the greatest defense really is, is you know, outreach and talking with that uh, exposure uh, because most people they really do care about that some people they hate them um, and and there is a lot of misinformation that has to that we have to combat um, but if you can talk with most people they're willing to to listen and they realize that you know 
as much as I want to go take a picture for Instagram in a cave, you know, I, I care about the environment and these poor little bats, you know, I don't want to hurt them. So I'm okay. I'm going to exclude myself. Other people, well, this is our family vacation. I don't care. Or my kids, they're going in a cave. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. And, and then the parents get mad at the kid because the kid's like, no, we just, we just went to lava beds. And you're like, yeah, you did. So it happens. If, it's, if I take my phone into a cave, is there any decontamination to do with the phone? I obviously can't boil yeah, my phone nah, for 20 minutes. you totally minutes. boil it. Well, I don't see any problems. I'd kill all of it right there, yeah. Uh, you know, you're not going to have it. Yeah. Um, so, so wipes, um, ethanol wipes or hydrogen peroxide wipes are your most effective tool. Um, so you wipe it down. Um, you follow the drying procedures. So nobody ever looks at like Clorox wipes and reads, you know, the drying times associated. But if you actually do and follow that, we find that there is a very, you know, it's more effective than nothing, right? So if you're going to take your phone with you everywhere, you know, you might purchase some 3% hydrogen peroxide wipes. Was it 70% uh, ethanol wipes? Wipe your stuff down. You know, it certainly helps. Um, and again, are, are you always getting covered in white nose spores even if you enter a cave that has it? No, but there's the opportunity, and that's what we're trying to mitigate. So bats, you know, I've, I've worked with them for a few years now. I find them charismatic, but for the, the average person, they don't care about bats, you know. So if you ask somebody, you know, do you like bats, a lot of them will tell you, mm, no, I don't like them. You know, and they'll tell you certain things. They drink your blood. They get caught in your hair. They have rabies. Do you like pandas? Oh, I love pandas. Awesome. Okay. Well, you know, what are pandas doing for you? What are bats doing for you? Yeah. Again, it's it's a it, yeah. The public perception. You know, you have a good publicist. It doesn't matter what you do, right? But bats have a, a certain rap sheet that we're trying to to work on, um, and it's you know it's a slow process. But with the emergence of white nose, um, that is certainly changed how bats have been researched so before you know there wasn't a lot of research on bats and that's an issue that we face now so now that we're trying to combat this disease we realize there's so little we know about their behavior so you need to know about an animal's behavior if you're gonna you know conserve it Um, we don't know a whole lot about them so that's really what most research that's happening that's what it's going into it's 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 all that backlog, you know, you may know about certain animals, you know, at Craters of the Moon, we know a lot about pronghorn. We don't know everything. You know, you're never going to know everything because, as I said, there's always going to be that one that just doesn't follow the rules. And you're like, yeah, I, I stated so clearly that this is what these animals do and that this one just says no. Um, but with bats, we don't have a lot of that. So we're trying to, to make up for all that, that data that doesn't exist. Um, so the project with maternity colonies, we had some people say, hey, there was a group of bats in a cave in July. Okay, that's probably a maternity colony. Um, you know, we got to go and investigate now. It's 20 years later, 20 to 30 years later, but we're doing our due diligence. And, um, again, we're gaining information. Negative information is still it's still information, so we know, and we can move from there and work on conservation. So what got you so interested in bats? Did you have one experience, or have you had an oh, interest in bats your whole life? That's or? not going to be good. Um <laughs> So in college, uh, I wanted to work um, on a thesis. It was the goal was always to go to graduate school. Um, I want to work with wildlife, so I went to a professor. You know, um, do you have any ideas on stuff that I could work on? Because I really want to do a thesis. She was my Amazonian culture and conservation professor, and she was, she told me, you know, I would love to to take you and work with these native groups. But the problem is, is 
you know, the people I work with, well, they kind of eat what you're interested in. So I'm probably not the best professor for you. Let me let me send out some feelers. So they started going around. And then eventually, um, I got an email from a professor that had been working with bats at, at, at the school that I was with on the uh, nature preserve. And there was very little done there. Um, so during summertime months, obviously, students go home. So there was very inconsistent data, hadn't really been processed very much. Um, I just wanted to work with animals, but I didn't really know a lot about bats. Um, but conservation, wildlife, it needs it. Sure, I'm in. So that's sort of what started the journey. And from there, it was just it was something that um, you know I stuck with. Um, I found it very fascinating because there's not a whole lot known about them. And so that unknown is always fun. You know, it's a puzzle. And with bats, there's even a bigger puzzle, you know. So you have to be very creative and, and to work and to, to make your projects work. So that's, that's really what it all was. It wasn't, you know, from a kid, I love bats. I'm going to protect them all. It was just, you know, I was, you know, looking for wildlife to work with. And this opportunity came up. And, you know, it seems to be successful so far. So we're continuing our work with, uh, with bats. And Ted has a great a great description of bats. He refers to them as puppies with wings. They're they're interesting. They're interesting little creatures. Um, I I find them fascinating. Um, you know, you see them and they're little tiny puffballs. Because even your largest bats, they're really tiny. I mean, you know, you talk about oh, that's a big bat. In the United States, or at least in Idaho, we don't really have bigger bats. Um, so there's some larger species. You know, more south of the border. Um, South America, different fruit bats throughout the world. There's some big bats. In the United States, they're all quite small. So, you know, they're, they're cute. They fly. You know, you barely see them most of the time. So I, I like them. And what's your your most memorable or your best experience, your coolest experience with bats? Oh, boy. Oh. Or one of the? One of the. I You know, I see, see so I hesitate. Um just because, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say a location. could be anywhere. might be crazy. It could be anywhere. I won't say anybody I work with. could have been a wildlife biologist. You never know. Um, so I had to do uh, white nose uh, swabbing. So we're swabbing for the presence uh, in the state that may or may not be Idaho. Um, and it's, you know, early. I mean, it's winter time, but, you know, we're in, was it April probably? Um, still a lot of ice in the caves. Things are a little slippery. We're going through looking for, you know, we're looking for bats. And the protocol is that you have 25 bats. So you want 25 samples to send off, and they're going to analyze them. Um, we were struggling to find 25 bats. And so we're going, and we're getting a couple bats, and we're on our way out. And I noticed that there was a cluster of, like, three bats on the ceiling. Uh, you know, ceiling was probably you know, 10, 12 feet up in the air, you know, I wanted those bats. Um, so my partner, um, I decided was the obvious option to get on my shoulders. And then I lifted them up. And then where I'm like, I'm on tippy toes, and we're going back and forth. And we're trying to, you know, swab these bats that are on the ceiling. And it, it was a it was a cluster. But it worked. We got the swabs. We got the, the samples. And there was no white na- nose found. So that was great. So it was but well worth it. Yeah, it was definitely worth it. Um, you know, there certainly would have been some some talks about, you know, safety. But I, you know, you have to do a risk assessment. Um, I determined that I was capable. 
and that uh, that you know it was well worth the knowledge gained, and that nothing would you know nothing too horrible would go wrong. You know, we had plenty of people who knew what we were doing close to an entrance. I, I, I wanted I wanted those samples. And so. so when you swab a bat, what what entails when you're swabbing a bat? So you have this, you know, uh, it's really like a long Q-tip. Um, you know, you moisten it with these little vials that they they give you, so it's all sterile. Um, you know, you don't want to be dry, you know, swabbing a bat with a dry sample. You know, they just they want like that. Um, but bats, when they're swabbed, they are hibernating, so they're really not awakening to any stimulus. Um, so what you do is you run it along any skin area um, and the muzzle. So those are the areas that are hit most with uh, these fungal spores, right? So you go along the arm, the forearm. Um, if you have any access to um, anywhere on the tail, um, on the wings, if they're showing, you know, you kind of rub it on there and then get them on the little face and that's it. You take the sample and you send it off to the lab to see if it's uh, positive or negative for PD. And they never wake up during that whole time. Well, that's, that's the belief. Um, you never know. So it really depends. As you get closer to um, their emergence, you certainly will. It'll take them a while to get out of torpor. Um, so when they're in torpor, they're, they're lethargic. Um, they're kind of comatose a little bit. Uh, that's how I describe it. So you they say they're not waking up. If you waited an hour, they might, mm-hmm. you know. I But... The idea is that, you know, the disturbance you cause is is offset by the knowledge gained and the protection. So, um, but I like to believe that they're, they're, they're enjoying a little nap. Yeah, they're just, yeah, yeah they're, they're just sleeping. A good time. Deep sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, do you have any, anything else? I, I want to make sure I ask you all the good questions about all the bats. The do you questions. have anything else about the bats that, that people, the common man should know? So the common man should know. I, you know, I, again, I think, I just think you have to be very open, um, with dealing with bats. Um, and that's been some of the most, um, rewarding experiences that I've had. It's not converting people, you know, I love bats now. That's not what I'm after. Um, but just respecting and, and trying to protect a species and going, well, I don't really like them. They still kind of creep me out, but I don't hate them. It's hating. It's, there's a lot of ignorance involved with hating. As I said, people, you know, they talk about um, bats, you know, they all drink blood. And it's like, well, there actually are a few species that drink blood. There's about three species out of, you know, over a thousand worldwide that drink blood. But yet that's something associated with bats. Um, you know, why do, why do we have that stigma with bats? You know, they get caught in my hair. Well, they're actually amazing flyers, you know. I mean, you do have these little juvenile bats, you know, once they start getting up and they're teens. And they do some silly things. They roost in strange areas. You're like, why are you in a door frame? I'm like, get out of there. But, you know, they're amazing. Um, echolocation is, is an amazing way to pinpoint. And they are precision flyers. So that's not happening. Uh, they're not blind. So there's a lot of amazing things that, that you know, are not common knowledge about bats. Um, there's a lot of misconception. And that's really all it is, is about, you know, trying to, to break those stigmas that people have, those negative stigmas. You mentioned that they're precision flyers. And I watched a video that was made here at Craters of the Moon where... Oh, they drink the water. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're drinking the water. Yeah. And one thing that I didn't realize while I was watching that until the, the narrator said it, it was like, yeah, these caves are pitch black. Remember that. Like when they're in there, they are pitch black, yep. and they're just and just make a little. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, they, they are they don't get any more than in their mouth. You know, they fly in and out. I mean, it's it's amazing when you watch them when they're 
Um, so that's that's another fun thing when you're listening to, to recordings or when you're listening to them with handheld detectors, um, active detectors, you can actually pinpoint the different types of call. So there's an approach, an approach, and then it gets closer and closer, and then all of a sudden you hear the feeding buzz, and it's this rapid sound. Um, so they're really honing in, and last second, that's where they pinpoint where their prey is. Wow. Um, so it's, it's pretty fun. Uh, we do have some some stuff in the works to to share that with the public um some of the researchers in the state have created uh, a nice fun little way they actually do it at the idaho fall zoo where they set up detectors and sort of it's surround sound and you can listen to them um, as they feed and also while getting a a lovely little uh you know talk so i'm hopeful that we can actually do that next season um, come summertime, you know, it'd be amazing. Oh, yeah. So we'll have the ideas that we'll have some uh, interpretive programs associated with bats. And then all the while, you know, you'll have, you know, surround sound and be able to identify. Um, the more you know about bats, you know, you'll be able to tell those low-frequency bats. So you can guess, you know, oh, that's a Townsend, oh, that's a Silver-Haired, and some of the higher pitch frequencies, you know, they're quicker. So they all have these different characteristics in their calls um so you might not ever see the bats but if you study acoustics long enough you know you get to know them even without knowing what they look like which is great so it's fun and getting that interaction with visitors will just help and assist with that respect absolutely that's that bats need exactly exactly again it's it's all about you know outreach the more the public is involved um, then there's more funding for bats and, and there's more research done because people care. If people don't care about something, there will be no change. Uh, the more that people, that the public is interested in something, you know, you're going you're gonna to be able to move the world. So, yeah, yeah no, it, it's great. And uh, I'm really excited to hopefully you know, be a part of that next season and uh, hopefully we'll have some fun programs for people. And the latest update on White Nose Syndrome is that it's, or that it's PD positive in Northern California. Is that the most recent yes. discovery? Yes. So it is PD positive. As of this year, that was like the that was the big takeaway. Um, so it, it, there's pseudogymnoascus destructans found in the state of California, which is unfortunate. Um, and again, we'll uh, we'll keep monitoring the uh, the spread and hopefully remain a holdout in the state of Idaho. But you never know. We'll just keep trying. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think that's all I have for you today. Um, that was amazing. That was that was everything I expected.